Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Library Science Channel on New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm joined by Anna Kaun and Frederick Stiernstadt, authors of Prison Media, published by MIT Press in May 2023. Prisons are not typically known for cutting-edge media technologies. Yet, from photography in the 19th century to AI-enhanced tracking cameras today, there's a long history of prisons being used as testing ground for technologies that are later adopted by the general public. If we recognize the prison as a central site for the development of media technologies, how might that change our understanding of both media systems and carceral systems? Prison media foregrounds the ways in which the prison is a model space for the control and transmission of information, a place where media is produced and a medium in its own right. Anne Kaun is Professor of Media and Communication Studies at Sodertorn University in Stockholm, and Frederick Sternstadt is Associate Professor of Media and Communication Studies at Sodertorn University. Anne and Frederick, welcome to New Books Network. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Uh, so before we get started, uh, could each of you share a little with listeners about your background, where you grew up and went to school, and what brought you to your work in media and communication studies? I don't know which one of you wants to go first. I could start. Um, so I'm originally from Germany, more specifically Leipzig, which is like one and a half hours from Berlin in the former eastern part of Germany. Um, and I moved to Sweden to do my PhD in media and communication studies in um, 2008. Uh, and then ever since I've lived in Sweden, but I also had a short stint of like almost two years in Philadelphia um, and did a study on protest movements and their media technologies there as my postdoc project. And how did I end up with media and communication studies is still a mystery to me, but it's very consistent. The only consistency in my life, I've only studied media and communications from the very beginning. Why? I'm not sure, but it seems to intrigue me. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks. Well, I'm from Sweden, uh, from the countryside where I grew up in the middle of nowhere, uh, a big house. Both of my parents are priests. Um, and then uh, why did I end up here? I don't know. I, I wanted to be a, become a journalist, I think. And I worked in the Swedish radio. Uh, and then I thought maybe I would study something really easy, uh, something that I basically already knew, uh, just have something to do. Um, and then I choose media and communication studies. Uh, but it wasn't easy. <laughs> and, and it also turned out to be very fun. Uh, so I just... I just, uh, you know, kept doing it um, you know, and stopped my radio gig. Yeah. Sure. Well, it sounds like a good place to end up. Um, so turning to your new book, Prison Media, uh, you explain in the introduction that our media infrastructures have been built and maintained by incarcerated individuals and imagined and developed in and through prison. How did you arrive at your work on this book? And why did you feel that it was important to write about the intersection of media studies and the carceral system? I mean, it seems maybe not so intuitive to go into the study of prisons when you're interested in media technologies, because like 
from the outset, it might appear that it, these are spaces that are really um, evaded of technologies or we have like obsolete technologies maybe. Um, and this was also one of the first encounters uh, that I had uh, at the intersection of prisons and media technologies was actually a podcast that was reporting on uh, American, US American prisons as the main buyer of tape cassettes as the uh, primarily way of um, distributing music. Um, so I got interested in these spaces and what kind of media are used there in a way. And then once you start digging, I guess you you find so many connections and also interesting uh, ways of, of exploring this intersection of media and, and prisons in a way. I don't... Yeah, I mean, we started to talk about it then and then I think it was... For me, it was when I read a really old dissertation in, from criminology, uh, and I realized how much of uh, like the old communication systems in Sweden, telegraphy and canal system and so on, that had been developed with uh, carceral work or I mean prisoners. <laughs> uh, so, um, and, and since I had my background in in uh, studies of media work and production and so on, I, I this was the kind of aha moment for me, I think, when I realized that there's something there, you know, we could uh, keep on working with this. And now, so. Yeah, it's neat to find those connections and realize that they can be starting points for, for more ideas. Um, so you dive into the history of the prison system, specifically in Sweden, but also elsewhere in your second chapter. Um, thinking about history, what historic ties between media and prisons do you see? And why did you feel that it was important to start with a chapter on history right, rather than diving into the present from the start? Um, so, I mean, in order to kind of understand this intersection of media and prisons, it seemed to us very important to situate them historically, but also in a specific context. So we are writing from from the Swedish perspective, but of course, there are always these kind of transnational interconnections, like the prison technology industries that are active in a lot of um, prisons. They are uh, working on a global scale, for example, or certain technologies that are developed in order to control and monitor. And so they and so on, they are used on a global scale. So it's not not really only a very local, local national um, uh, thing, this kind of prison media technologies, but at the same time, they of course emerge in a very specific context and a jurisdictional context that's kind of important for the governance and the, the possibilities of introducing and constraining media technologies in the prison context. So that's why it's, it was important for us to to situate this entanglement of media and technology is historically, um, but also showing uh, how this changes over time, really, um, like how the media system changes, but also the political system changes. Um, yeah, and I think that that relation also between the political system and the, the prison system and the media system in a way, I mean, it, it, it serves also as kind of a outline for the whole book in a way because there are a clear break in the prison system in the mid 20th century and it's the same with the kind of and that has to do with how they perceive communication and how they understand what kind of media technologies that are allowed in prisons and what 
uh, prisoners are supposed to do and not to do and so on. And it also has something to do with uh, changes within the media uh, society and the media realm uh, of that time, right? The modern kind of media uh, system developing. So, so it it kind of it's a necessary chapter in a way for all of the other more empirical chapters. Uh, I think. Uh, so that's one one reason to start there. But of course, it's also impossible, I guess, to tell the story about the contemporary situation without this historical context in a way, because so much, uh, I mean, it's it's so much is formed by by what has happened before, I guess. So that is also a way to, for us, it's natural to start there, I think. But um, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then another big theme in this book is labor. And I saw labor ideas around labor coming up throughout the book, but you really focused on the labor of prisoners in chapter three. How have prisons and prisoners been engaged in the construction, maintenance, and repair of infrastructures of communication and media through the 20th century? Um, and what do you think this tells us about like the infrastructure of capitalism more broadly? Yeah, I mean, to start with the second part of the question, uh, of course, uh, the labor, lab, labor's, labor in, within prison is very tightly connected to developments in capitalism uh, and uh, prisons as such is very tightly connected to capitalist development. Uh, for example, the um, high unemployment or the negative kind of externalities of a capitalist system can be handled within a prison system, right? So uh, in times of high unemployment, uh, we tend to criminalize uh, a whole range of behaviors or uh, kind of increase the time that you serve for some minor minor things and so on so that uh, the prison can kind of take care of these people that have nothing to do in society uh, at a specific moment. Uh, so in that way, the whole prison system is is tightly connected to, to capitalist development. Uh, but of course, when it comes to labor, uh, it has been from the outset uh, also this conflict all the time, right? Because uh, prisons are a way to... Uh, create cheap labor <laughs> or free labor almost. Uh, so, I mean, uh, when uh, when labor was introduced in the Swedish prison system in the early 20th century, then there was a huge protest within the unions and so on that uh, they are taking our jobs now and this is, uh, you know, it's uh, almost uh, no salary for these people and so they will take uh, all the production and so on away from uh, from, our, from us and so on. So, so this is... Um, of course, very tightly connected. Um, but when it comes to to what kind of media technologies that have been uh, and communication technologies that have been been developed there, it's easy to say that uh, what hasn't been developed or produced there. I mean, almost everything uh, components for almost every possible uh, communication technology uh, have at some point been uh, built or or. Uh, or produced in some way in the prison system, from the early telegraph system to the canal system, mails and so on, uh, to digital components of, of various kinds in our days. Um, yeah. uh, and another aspect of it is also that changes in the labor market map are mapping onto the labor within the prison as well, not only that they are kind of uh, taking care of the 
surplus of workforce, like um, in 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 during times of crisis, but also if we're thinking about um, developments like globalization and outsourcing or offshoring and and so, and so on, um, that this is also then an experience that you have in the context of the prisons and the the workforce there. So increasingly with forms of outsourcing and outsourcing the production into a low-income country is uh, certain forms of production are disappearing in the Swedish context, for example, from, from the prisons because they couldn't compete with the salaries uh, any longer. And then it becomes a problem because the work is actually part of the rehabilitation programs in the Swedish understanding, which is maybe what contributes to the Swedish exceptionalism, the idea of producing normalcy in the prison context. You have a normal structured day, you go to work, you go to the workshop, you do productive work, and then re you return to the housing units. Um, so this is actually, so there is, it's forced labor, they have to work or attend an educational program, incarcerated individuals, or attend therapy. But now it's rather the problem of attracting uh, work opportunities because, you know, how the labor market has changed towards services um, in in uh, northern uh, industrial or in the global north can't be matched by uh, the prisons and, and the, yeah. the workforce there in a similar way. But then, of course, we can think of new kind of forms of labor that are more based on value production through passive labor. So if we are thinking about the production of data, for example, we have one example on voice fingerprinting that is um, being done in US-based uh, prisons, for example. So huge databases are produced, recording incarcerated uh, people's voices, which are then used to um, develop further voice recognition technologies that are not specifically developed for the prison context, but still uh, incarcerated are contributing to, to value production, but more in these kind of what we call passive forms of of work, which is not productive labor. It's not producing a certain specific product, but producing values through, uh, um, yeah, data that they are kind of delivering through just being in the prison context, in the prison space. Yeah, the, the range of examples that you shared in your book of like different systems that um, technologies that are um, developed or tried or improved within the prison system is really um, mind-blowing. Um, another big theme in this book is architecture. And I thought this was a really fascinating connection. I would love if you could explain how you see prison buildings themselves as a form of communication and what really makes up that architecture. Yeah. I mean, from the very outset of the cell prison in the 19th century, this was the big issue in a way, how to uh, handle communication within this space. Uh, and from the outset, it was the silent system, right? So uh, you're supposed to not communicate. Uh, as one of the, the engineers of the cell prison says, they, he talks about the evil of conversion. So you should not speak with each other. That's very important. Uh, and you shouldn't see each other. Uh, and you shouldn't be seen by anyone in the society. You should be in this uh, kind of closed place away from from people uh, and you should only communicate then with yourself in order to become a better person and also with God of course uh, so you had the Bible that was basically what you 
were allowed to read most uh, Western prison systems and perhaps some spiritual books or so. Uh, so, I mean, then, of course, the issue of how to uh, stop communication was very central. And that answer was architecture. Uh, so how to construct these facilities in a way so that uh, no one can uh, see and no one can hear and you cannot be heard and you cannot uh, be, be kind of impossible for you to communicate with any, any, anyone else. And so the whole structure is kind of uh, based on that idea. That what it is what creates the cell prison and the way that cell prisons uh, look, how they look and what, what they are. So in that sense, they are kind of a, a medium, you could say, or they, they are something that are supposed to create and steer and guide communication. Uh, and in a way, that very idea then comes back in uh, a second um, uh, period that we look uh, into, which we call the the era of the industrial prison after the Second World War, basically, and which is the modern uh, prison facility. But here uh, it's reversed. It's totally different because uh, the idea now is, uh, on the contrary, that uh, communication is the solution uh, to the problem. Uh, so uh, uh, everything can be solved with more communication with your fellow peers and with all these kind of new people that enters into the prison facilities, psychologists, counselors, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, and then the architecture, once again, becomes the way to organize that so that people are supposed to move around and there are meeting places and there are places where this communication is going to happen. And this is very connected to the development of the uh, CCTV cameras uh, because uh, that is what kind of makes it possible to open the, the spaces in a way so that people can move around but they are always surveyed by this specific technology then, so that movement can in a way be guided <laughs> and not uh, totally kind of uncontrolled within the facilities. Uh, but then communication becomes like the, uh, the solution instead of the problems that it was. Uh, but still, architecture needs to be there to kind of form this uh, specific communicative regime, you could say, in a way. And I mean, if you look into very contemporary reports on the future of prisons and so on, this has accelerated you could say. So now everything is basically about communication. We have this example in the book about uh, one of these model prisons at the moment is a Norwegian prison uh, where they uh, say things such as that, well, they have, you could, you could adjust the lighting, lightning so that it becomes more or less lightning in your cell. Uh, so you could communicate <laughs> with, the, with the lightning or through lightning. I mean, so everything be becomes communication. Communication seems to be kind of the main solution to to the problem of um, crime. Then, how to and then the architecture is of course the key here, uh, and interior design as well of the prisons. Then, do you want to add something? No. <laughs> yeah, that was um, that was a really. A uh, fascinating chapter because, as you noted, we see that evolution of ideas of how communication should even function in a prison, and yet the the architecture does actually also adapt to fit that. Um, and so, then turning to the following chapter, you focus on how prisons serve as sites, uh, test sites for technology. What are some of the ways, some examples of how you've seen this play out? And what does this show us about the relationship between prisons and communication technologies that are developed for control? Mm -hmm. Yes. So one of the major arguments or things that we are exploring in, in this chapter is really the interconnection between prisons and technology development more generally. So uh, taking ideas 
um, on or examples of um, experimenting with different kinds of also medical technologies in the prison context. We look into very specific technologies that that were first introduced in 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 prisons, like for example CCTV, the first um, larger space where CCTV was used uh, is a prison that was opened in 1956 um, in Sweden and which became this kind of high-tech uh, prison. Today we would probably say the first smart prison. Um, and we have actually spoken to one of the uh, uh, guards who was working there and he really described this experience of coming from uh, a camp where he worked before in the northern parts of Sweden and then entering into, into this uh, high-tech, very modern prison and how this also transformed his work as a guard in, in the prison context. Um, but then we've also looked into very uh, specific technologies and how they are uh, moving into other use areas. Um, and we have done this by looking into patents. So looking into patent citations to see, um, like an academic referencing, technologies are also citing previous technologies. And therewith, you can kind of identify certain histories, but also see networks of technologies and how they are moving between different areas. So we have looked into ankle monitoring, the, those first ankle monitors that were developed in, in the 1960s, and then how uh, contemporary technologies like wearables, for example, Fitbits and so on, and similar applications are actually quoting those early ankle monitors that were developed for the uh, um, um, for the correction sector. Um, and, and in that way, we kind of make those connections and historical connections between uh, technology diffusion from the prison and correction sector into other areas of, of society. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, you've really highlighted, for, for me reading this book, I felt like you highlighted so many connections, um, like, you know, what you just noted about wearables and early ankle monitors that I am excited to, I guess, see other other people read this book and realize that and see new directions for more research. Um, so to wrap up your book, thinking about future directions, you point out some possible futures that you see prison media leading us towards. What are the ways that we should be aware of prison media permeating our lives more and more? And how should ordinary citizens watch for this and what should we do about it? So one of the major points why we have written this book is really to make these connections visible. Like a lot of those media infrastructures that undergird our everyday lives have these these traces of prisons in them, although they also have this aura of technologies of freedom, for example, they empower us to communicate, to connect across long distances and so on, to get inspired, to get uh, all those uh, amazing things and being creative and so on. But within those potentials, there's always also this connection to unfreedom of some. And, and what does it mean for us to be reminded of this? But we are also elaborating with this notion of uh, mobile incarceration, um, like as a as an expression or trying to describe the contemporary moment where we ourselves choose to monitor ourselves, our everyday lives, our bodies, our connections, our relationships, and so on. 
that are amazing, but that also have these forms of incarceration maybe with within it. And we draw there on Raymond Williams and his notion of um, mobile privatization that he was writing about in the con in in the nineteen seventies. Um, this interconnection between different technologies and and uh, social relations uh, and and mobility, especially. But what we are also looking into, and this is like for the broader um, society, but it's also like very specifically the diffusion of corrections and the prison uh, into a society more generally, like thinking about, you know, using to an increasing extent uh, ankle monitoring and serving uh, sentences at home. And what does this mean when we disperse the prison in that way as well? Uh, so these are some of the discussions that we are thinking about and relating to in this this final chapter. Yeah, I mean that's it. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Um, thank you for yeah you know, all the work that you put into this book and all the ideas that you've I guess made us aware of. Um, I really enjoyed reading it and enjoyed chatting with you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you both for, for chatting today. Once again, my name is Jen Hoyer, and I've been speaking with the authors of Prison Media, published by MIT Press. Thank you for listening to New Books Network.